a minuscule nation exceedingly seemingly insignificant when compared to other peoples and nations swirling in the solar system of societies and civilizations. That tiny nation is perfectly positioned to have a critical moral impact on humanity. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 54, Sun, Moon, and the Jewish New Year. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. When is the Jewish New Year? It is a simple question, and it would seem to have an equally easy answer. Everyone knows that the day observed by Jews in the beginning of autumn, a day known as Rosh Hashanah, is the Jewish New Year. But what if it isn't? And what if understanding that Rosh Hashanah is not the Jewish New Year is essential to understanding the complexity of Jewishness itself? In Deuteronomy, the Torah returns to the holidays, and particularly to those that are known by Jews as the Shalosh Regalim, the three times of the year when Israelites from all over are obligated to convene at the temple to celebrate together. Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, or in English, Passover, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Booths. And while Rosh Hashanah is not mentioned, a careful study of the opening verses will tell us a great deal about the complexity of the calendar and why it is not a simple question at all to ask when the year begins. We begin with the beginning of Deuteronomy chapter 16. Observe the month of spring and keep the Pesach unto the Lord thy God. For in the month of Aviv, the Lord thy God brought thee forth out of Egypt by night. It is with Pesach, commonly called Passover, that the cycle of holidays begins. Only then do we turn in verse 10 to the next holiday. And thou shalt keep the feast of weeks unto the Lord thy God. And then the final of the three, Sukkot, verse 13. Thou shalt keep the feast of booths seven days after thou hast gathered in from thy threshing floor and from thy winepress. To use the Hebrew, it is Pesach, Shavuot, and then Sukkot, not Sukkot, Pesach, Shavuot. Pesach, or Passover, is the first holiday of the Jewish year, and the Torah emphasizes that Passover must take place in the spring, in the month of Aviv, a word referencing the first grain, emphasizing that the Jewish ritual calendar begins at this time, at the time of new beginnings of new agricultural life all around. It is the month in which Passover takes place, known today as Nisan, which the book of Exodus also insists marks the first Jewish month. HaChodesh HaZelachem Rosh Chodashim, the Almighty commanded Moses, this month is for you the first month. We begin our Jewish calendar year, in other words, with the month of spring, because the rebirth that takes place in nature parallels the birth of the people Israel at the Exodus. When is the Jewish New Year? Rightly understood, it is the first day of Nisan, the first day of Passover's month, that marks the Jewish New Year. But wait a minute. In the preceding chapter, chapter 15, we are told again of the Shemitah, the sabbatical year that always occurs at the end of the seven-year cycle. And this cycle, and the Shemitah year that lies at its core, as well as the 50th year Jubilee that follows, all begin and end in the fall, on the first day of the month known now as Tishrei on the day that we call today Rosh Hashanah, words which mean the start of the year. When, according to Jewish law, does the agricultural year begin for these cycles? The first of Tishrei. Thus it would seem that the passing of the years are marked in two very different ways, one in the spring and one in the fall. And if we wish to capture the complexity of the calendar, we need only note that the day known today as Rosh Hashanah 
the fall holiday called the start of the year, is followed soon after by Sukkot, which, as we have seen, for the Torah, is the last biblical holiday of the year. So what's going on here? All this hints to the many layers of Jewish time. And I would add, ladies and gentlemen, that as someone who lives in New York, that it is not only Jews here that have to cope with the complexity of the Jewish calendar. For the advent of the holidays have important ramifications for everyone when it comes to one of the critical questions of our age. When are the rules for alternate side parking suspended? As the New York Times reported, when Mayor John Lindsay originally announced during his tenure that specifically on Christmas, the rules of parking would not apply. Then the New York Times reports, quote, an immediate uproar prompted Mr. Lindsay, who had run with much Jewish support, to announce the next day that he would add Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. And the article further down tells us that, quote, in 1970, Mayor Lindsay signed a law that suspended parking regulations on holidays, taking it out of administrative discretion. The initial list included Christmas, Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, Good Friday, the first two and last two days of Sukkot, Shavuot, the first two and last two days of Passover, and all state and national holidays, end quote. Since then, holidays of other faiths have also been added to this list. And while I understand that alternate side parking is not the most important issue, ladies and gentlemen, the subject of Jews and Gentiles is actually relevant to our discussion. Jews see themselves as both part of a particular covenantal faith and people, and also as members of universal humanity. Both themes run through the Jewish calendar. The month of Passover, commemorating our people's birth, is also the beginning of the Jewish year because it marks the Exodus, a particularistic covenantal moment. But in the fall, on what is called Rosh Hashanah, we believe that we are marking a universal moment, the anniversary of creation itself. And so we begin, then, the universal year. And what Jews focus on Rosh Hashanah in our liturgy is not so much on the Jewish people, but on the entire world. We declare Hayom Harat Olam. Today we remember the world coming into being. Hayom Yamid Bamishpat Kol Yitzurei Olamim. Today, therefore, all the world is judged. And today we pray for a good year ahead for the entire world. So we have a Jewish New Year and a universal New Year in Judaism. To put it another way, the first day of the Passover month is the Jewish New Year. And what we call Rosh Hashanah is the world's New Year, just it's mostly Jews that know that. It is with this in mind that we can comprehend another aspect of how Jews mark the passage of time. The calendar of rabbinic Judaism is primarily lunar, utilizing months that follow the waxing and waning of the moon. Because the moon cycles between 29 and 30 days, Jewish months tend to alternate between 29 and 30 days. Yet, the lunar calendar of the Jews cannot only be lunar. For as we have seen, the Torah also instructs us that Pesach, Passover, must always occur in the spring. And if each Jewish month is around 29 and a half days, 12 times that number gives us a lunar year of around 354 days. Because the solar cycle is longer, a tiny bit more than 365 days, every year, the Jewish lunar year falls 11 days behind the solar cycle. And if unchecked, this would put Passover ultimately in the winter. Passover must be in the spring. We therefore add, every so often, a 13th month to the Jewish year. Our leap years involve not an extra day, but an additional lunar month. For Nachmanides, the source for this comes from our passage. The verse that we have previously cited, 
observe the month of spring and make a Pesach to the Lord your God, is actually an obligation to ensure that Passover always ends up in the spring. Or to put it another way, the original Hebrew, Shamor et Chodesh Aviv, should perhaps from Nachmanides more accurately be read, not as observe the month of spring, but rather preserve the month of spring. Ensure that the lunar and solar calendars are reconciled so that Passover, Pesach, always ends up in the spring. The Jewish calendar, thus, is based both on the moon and the solar cycles and seasons. And the duality of our calendar reflects the complexity of Jewish identity. For the rabbinic tradition, if the Jewish calendar is linked to the lunar cycle, it is because the moon itself is an embodiment of the Jewish people. The calendar was bestowed upon the eve of the Exodus in God's commandment, this month shall be the first month. It occurred immediately following the penultimate plague of darkness, which embodied the defeat of the sun, which, as we have discussed, was the chief god in the pagan pantheon of ancient Egypt. The embrace of the lunar calendar is thus linked with the birth of the Jewish people, with Jewish particularism, with the mystery of Jewish chosenness. Moreover, in the moon's seeming disappearance into darkness only to be suddenly reborn, the sages saw the ultimate symbol of the eternal people. As I've previously mentioned, during periods of persecution, when the observance of Jewish ritual was restricted and the communication of the calendar was forbidden, the secret code for the rabbis to announce the new moon, the new month, was David Melech Yisrael Chai V'Kayam, King David lives, meaning the Jewish people endures, as does Judaism its faith. The holidays, whose dates are determined by the lunar calendar, will be observed as our chapters in Deuteronomy declare, in the dwelling place of the divine where Israel will gather on the holidays. Now, of course, we know that this place will ultimately be Jerusalem. But in our passages in Deuteronomy, it is referred to constantly as the Makom Asher Yivchar Hashem, the place that God will choose, hinting again that the mysterious enduring nature of Jerusalem, especially during its calendrical celebrations, will reflect the mysterious and miraculous endurance of the chosen people. At the same time, Judaism insists that chosenness is never a reason for arrogance. Judaism never lets us forget that we as a people are at the center of God's plan, but God's plan is not merely for us, but for all the earth. And therefore, Jewish time is both lunar and solar, because if the introduction of the lunar calendar is a symbol of Jewish particularism, it's linked to the cycle of the sun reminds us that the Jewish worldview is both particular and universal. If Jewish time is both lunar and solar, if the moon is a symbol of Jewish particularism, but it is also constantly made parallel to the universal seasons of the solar year, this is meant to remind us that the Jewish worldview encompasses both particularism and universalism. The Hebraic tradition gave to the world the doctrine of a God who links his name to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but who also creates every human being in his image. Judaism has succeeded in maintaining both the concept of Jewish chosenness and of universal concern. The Jewish calendar is lunar, but reoriented constantly towards the earth's solar seasons, thereby embodying the particularism and the universalism that coexist within Judaism. And the two, of course, are intertwined. For part of Jewish chosenness, is for the Jews to be the vehicle through which God is known to the world. And here a story about the moon provides a metaphor. Astronaut Gene Cernan recounted how he suddenly had a stunning religious experience 
when looking at the earth from the lunar surface. As he put it, quote, the earth doesn't tumble through space. It moves with logic and certainty and with beauty beyond comprehension. He also added, it's just too beautiful to have happened by accident. There has to be somebody bigger than you and me that put it all together. There's no question in my mind that there's a creator of the universe. There's a God up there. Someone placed our little world, our sun and our moon, where they are in the dark void, end quote. So a man stands on the moon and comes to cognize our creator. In a similar sense, the Jewish people, symbolized by the moon, are chosen to impact the worldview of humanity so that ultimately all the earth will see itself as created by God. And seen through the prison of modern cosmology, an interesting scientific parallel also emerges. The moon, as we know, orbits the earth and can be seen as an insignificant astronomical addendum to the earth. Yet scientists, while pondering what has been called the Goldilocks paradox, why only earth seems to have the conditions that are, in the words of the fairy tale, just right for the emergence of sentient life, have discovered that a large part of the answer of why Earth specifically is life-worthy has to do with the moon. Astronomer Jack Lascar once put it this way. He said, We owe our present climate stability to an exceptional event, the presence of the moon. And building on this, physicist Fred Hareen tells us the following, quote, Without an extra-large moon orbiting at the right distance from us, scientists predict that Earth would be subject to a runaway greenhouse effect, as on Venus or a permanent ice age as Mars would experience if it had more water, end quote. So the moon is separate from the earth and much smaller than the earth. It orbits the earth. But without the moon, the seasons of the earth would not exist. So here we have a minuscule moon, so vanishingly small when compared to the planets of our solar system, and yet it is positioned in a manner crucial to the survival of the human race. It too is a metaphor. Likewise, the Jewish people embodied by the moon a minuscule nation exceedingly seemingly insignificant when compared to other peoples and nations swirling in the solar system of societies and civilizations. That tiny nation is perfectly positioned to have a critical moral impact on humanity. John Adams, the American founding father, put it this way, quote, I will insist that the Hebrews have done more to civilize men than any other nation. If I were an atheist and believed in blind eternal fate, I should still believe that fate had ordained the Jews to be the most essential instrument for civilizing the nations. If I were an atheist of the other sect, who believe or pretend to believe that all is ordered by chance, I should believe that chance had ordered the Jews to preserve and propagate to all mankind the doctrine of a supreme, intelligent, wise, almighty sovereign of the universe, which I believe to be the great essential principle of all morality, and consequently, of all civilization. Jews unite in Judaism profound particularism, and astonishing universalism. And as we prepare to mark Rosh Hashanah, we will pray for all the world. But of course, we will do so as Jews through the traditions of our ancestors and according to the laws of our covenantal faith. It is Natan Sharansky who draws on an American Jewish writer in utilizing a ritual of Rosh Hashanah to join particularism and universalism. He describes how, in fighting for universal human rights, he did so as a Jew, and how he learned that, quote, the path to liberation could not be found in denying our own roots while pursuing universal goals. On the contrary, we had to deepen our commitment because only he who understands his own identity and has already become a free person can work effectively for the human rights of others. In Israel, Sharansky continued, while I was writing this book, 
I came upon an image by the American writer Cynthia Ozick that captures this idea perfectly. The shofar, the ram's horn that is sounded in the synagogue on the high holidays, is narrow at one end and wide at the other. Nothing happens if you blow into the wide end, but if you blow into the narrow end, the call of the shofar rings loud and true. End quote. Particularism and universalism can be found at the heart of the Jewish faith. The danger today is that so many assume that true universalism is only found in losing particularism. This episode of Bible 365 is being released two days before Rosh Hashanah. May the shofar that will be sounded embody our prayers and our pleadings as Jews and as human beings. And may God grant the Jewish people and all the world a blessed new year. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.